this afternoon? Weakness, especially if we're trying to be strong. Had to be guarded at all times to show any vulnerability is to kind of throw in the white towel to just acknowledge that you can't do this, that you can't lead. But in reality, there's a direct connection between our willingness to be vulnerable and the strength of our character. She can, uh, Brene Brown has done some excellent research on the subject, and uh, she concludes this, our willingness to own and engage with our vulnerability determines the depth of our courage and the clarity of our purpose. So she finds a direct link in her research to our willingness to be vulnerable and the strength of our courage. And if you're not convinced, consider Jesus. He possessed all authority in the universe, but his greatest act was his willingness to lay down his life. We might think that the majesty of Christ's authority would protect him from ever having to endure any sense of humility. But in fact, it's the pinnacle, it's his pinnacle act of humility that we read about in Philippians 2, 5 through 10, that assured his exaltation and glory. And so the link between majesty, authority, and humility are all revealed in this passage that we'll look at this afternoon. We've just considered... Last week, the transfiguration of Jesus, this display of him and his glory, which three disciples were able to witness. They had this privilege of catching a glimpse of the glory of the Messiah. And that glory points both to his authority to save, as we talked about last week, but also, as we saw in Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 20, judge. same glory is a display of his ability and authority to judge. So this now happens on the following day. That is, they're coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, wherever that was. They then face this crowd that they run into. And and it's here that the crowd begins to recognize the majesty of God, God as well. The majesty of God that's displayed in the authority of Christ. In fact, the same word that he uses, in, that Peter uses to describe what he saw in the transfiguration in 1 Peter is the same word that's used here by Luke to describe the majesty of God that the crowd saw that Jesus possessed in his authority to heal. So they will witness his power to heal a boy convulsing under demonic possession and it leaves them amazed at the majesty of God. But the reference to majesty is then quickly followed by Jesus' second announcement to his disciples of his impending death. So Peter's confession that Jesus was the Christ of God earlier in this chapter in verses 18 through 20, his confession that Jesus was the Christ of God was immediately followed by Jesus warning the disciples that he would suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So the acknowledgement of his position as the Messiah is immediately followed up with this recognition that he would be handed over to suffer many things and to die. So that same pattern now is reflected here once again. The crowd sees the majesty of God and then immediately it's from the crowd. Jesus is saying, don't think that this, uh, this, this outlook from the crowd is going to remain because I'll be handed over to them shortly. 
So ultimately, what I, what I would summarize this section as, it's the majesty of God that is revealed by Christ's authority is magnified by his humility. The majesty of God that is revealed by Christ's authority in which he heals this demoniac is magnified by his humility, his willingness to lay down his life. So before we read the passage, let's ask for the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for its, its wisdom in guiding us and leading us. Lord, we recognize in our own lives this, a need to really understand the role of humility. We can give you all, all praise and, and, and glory for your majesty and your transcendence, and yet you are willing to lay that aside, to come to us, to condescend to our level so that, that you might save us. You might bring us to yourself, and so we can look forward to being in that glorious state with you, and yet at this time, even now, we pray that we might be humbled, that we might have the right perspective in our home, in our places of work, in our neighborhoods, that we would serve others and love them, even as Christ has shown us by his example. It's in his name we ask it. Amen. So read with me, Luke. This is the day after his transfiguration. On the next day, this is the day after his transfiguration, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, suddenly cries out, it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him. And will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of Zane is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, I just want to break passage down into the two sections that we find in the ESV translation that I'm reading from. You have verses 37 through 43. That reveals the authority of Christ's majesty. And then we'll look at verses 44 and 45 as the humility of Christ's majesty. So the authority of Christ's majesty and the humility of Christ's majesty. It's a the crowd, it seems, was never very far from Jesus, even when he gets away to a place to pray. Uh, they're, they're waiting for him to return. After having some time alone with the disciples and then spending a day with his closest disciples, Jesus finds himself being preps, pressed right into action immediately upon descending the mountain. A father comes to him, crying out and begging for him to rescue his son who was suffering demonic possession. 
He could no longer bear watching his only child continually shattered by the demon that would convulse him and cause him to foam at the mouth. This demon, we read, rarely gave him any reprieve. So Kent Hughes notes, he takes all all the descriptions in the parallel accounts from Mark and Matthew, combining them with Luke, and, and he gives this picture. He says, when we picture the gospel descriptions together, we get a heartbreaking picture. When the demon seizes the boy, the child screams. The spirit throws him to the ground in convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. He grinds his teeth and becomes stiff as a board. Many times he had been cast into fire or water by the evil spirit, and he is covered with scars. Even worse, the spirit has made him deaf and dumb. And so it's an awful sight to imagine what he's going through and to imagine this father having to witness the torment day after day. So the disciples, he brings his Jesus, the disciples who are unable to heal the boy, which raised his desire to see Jesus. Notice the father's relentless dedication to his child. He would not give up. He would continue to seek the help of Jesus until this, his boy was healed because he knew that, that uh, Jesus was the only hope. And so we, we can stop here and ask ourselves, do we, do we bring our own children before the Lord in this way? Do we bring our own children before him in prayer? Are we crying out to God on their behalf and seeking the Lord's favor in their lives? We do have a great high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses, and we can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence, as we learn in Hebrews, that we will receive mercy and grace, just as this father received. Right? He, he becomes an example to us his love for his son. But what did Jesus mean by his rebuke? He says, O faithless and twisted generation, in verse 41, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? It's a bit confusing in that context. The father has just told him, asked and begged for his healing, and he's acknowledged that the disciples were unable to heal him. So is Jesus able? And this is his initial reaction. Was he rebuking the father? Was there something in the Father's request that was worthy of rebuke, or was he rebuking his disciples for their inability to cast out the demon? Or is he somehow rebuking the crowd? He speaks of the, this twisted generation. It's almost like he's broadening his rebuke to everyone who's present. Well, we know that the, the Father is recorded as declaring in, in Mark chapter 9, verse 24, the Father says, I believe, help my unbelief. So there is a sense there in which the father is struggling with belief, and yet it's a weak faith, but he's trusting. He's asking for help. Help my unbelief. We also know that later on the disciples in, in Mark's gospel ask Jesus of prayer. They were unable to cast out the demon, and he tells them it's because of their little faith and their lack of prayer. He says this would, would, can only come out by prayer. And so again, even with the disciples, Having had success in casting out demons prior to this experience, now seem to have fallen into a place where maybe they thought they just followed the process they did before and it, ha- and it automatically happens. They didn't pray, they didn't pause to pray or something, or that their faith was just in the process rather than, 
than in trusting in God to bring healing. But, it, but it, Jesus specifically says it's because of their little faith. So both the father and the disciples were struggling to believe, but we also recognize that for both of those groups, you know, for the disciples and the father, it seems like they were trying to do the right thing, but they were weak in doing it. So I think the rebuke primarily is directed towards the crowd, right? much like God's rebuke of the wilderness generation, which borrows some of the, the language in this passage is borrowed from that experience, the wilderness generation, right? a, a, a twisted generation. He's, he's rebuking them, and that wilderness generation frequently distrusted God to provide. And maybe this crowd was more interested in watching a circus than trusting that Jesus could heal the boy. Or maybe they were simply there for the healing but not recognizing who Jesus was. And so, so this rebuke is, is directed in their way or to them. Jesus asked for the boy then to be brought to him, and in the middle of another demonic attack, the boy is convulsing on the ground, um, Jesus simply rebukes the unclean spirit and heals the boy. It's, it's almost anticlimactic. <laughs> this is the exorcism of a boy who is tormented, or who, a boy who has been tormented by this demon. This doesn't... doesn't Tell us for how long, but for years and years, this, this demon has been tormenting 